All right, I want to welcome everyone to our time of worshiping the Lord together. And where we've come to together this morning is to a time of the preaching of the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. We have a hard passage of Scripture this morning. And I amen my brother's prayer that he prayed earlier that the Lord would help us to understand it. And I think that's a beautiful prayer that I could scream at you for the next hour. But unless God teaches us his word, unless the Holy Spirit teaches us his word, we won't understand it. And so we need the Lord's help. And let's go to the Lord together now in prayer and let's ask for help. Father, we come this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask that you would display your faithfulness to your own word. God, you're faithful to your word. Lord, you tell us that your word is powerful. And we pray that you would rule in our midst this morning as our king by your word, Lord. That you would cause your word this morning to run to and fro and to accomplish its purpose in our life. God, we ask that you would cause the unfolding of your word to give light this morning and impart understanding to the simple. Come be our teacher, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. If you are new to Grace Community Church, uh, our, our strategy uh, as a local church is to preach through books of the Bible. And so... If you are new to this local church this morning, you're jumping right in to to the middle of our series on the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. We are on the backside of the Sermon on the Mount, and in recent weeks we have been seeing the Lord Jesus Christ bring this sermon to a close, and he's called us to respond to his teaching. And you remember that when Jesus lays out the responses to the Sermon on the Mount, to the responses to his teaching, and really these are the responses to Jesus, period, there are only two. There are two and only two ways to respond to Jesus Christ. Jesus says you're either on the broad road that's leading to destruction, or you have entered the narrow gate of salvation. You're walking the narrow path that leads to to eternal life. Just a few verses prior to the text we're going to look at, the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded all of his hearers to enter the narrow gate. And I want you to think about how gracious of a command that is. That that command tells you this morning, Jesus Christ desires that you be saved. His command to you is to enter the narrow gate, not to stay on the broad path. So he calls us to respond to his teaching. And then the Lord Jesus points out several deceptions that we need to be aware of along the way, along the path. And the first thing he draws our attention to as he closes the Sermon on the Mount is he says, beware of false prophets. And he says, beware, there are going to be gods along the way, but they're going to be false gods. They're going to try to deceive you. They're going to make you think that you're on the narrow path when you're still on the broad path that leads to destruction. And so the Lord Jesus warns us about deceivers, 
the, the danger of being influenced by deceptive teachers. This morning, we're going to come to a second warning from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus say, beware of false prophets, and you need to be aware of other people deceiving you about the state of your soul. The Lord Jesus Christ is about to admonish us, warn us to wake up and beware not only of false prophets, but also false peace. False peace. Let's read our text together. Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 21, this is the word of the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The title of the message this morning is Beware of False Peace. What is false peace? Well, we see it right in uh, the beginning verse there, verse 21. If we were to summarize it just in in a very simple way, false peace is this. When somebody claims to be a Christian with their mouth, but they're actually not a Christian. They think they are. They have peace. They have assurance, but it's false peace and it's false assurance. They call Jesus Lord, but Jesus says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what we're pressing into together this morning. That's what we prayed and asked for the Lord to give us understanding, teach us about this false peace, this false conversion. Jesus gives us a contrast in this opening verse, verse 21, between the sayer and the doer. And I hope you caught that as we read together this morning. The contrast is between the one who utters mere words and the one who does the will of God. The sayer and the doer. The sayer professes to have salvation, but Jesus instructs us this morning that it's only the doer of the will of God that possesses salvation. Salvation, And so the warning here is simple this morning. Simple warning from Jesus Christ, but it's a sober warning. It is a serious warning. The one, the Christian who has mere words, Jesus says, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In this passage, Jesus is teaching us that those with false peace call Jesus Lord but they don't do God's will. And in verse 23, he calls them workers of lawlessness. They don't do the will of God in verse 21, and they're workers of lawlessness in verse 23. They have peace and assurance, but they have false peace and assurance. Jesus addresses this type of person in our passage as a false Christian. A false Christian. 
They live a lifestyle of lawlessness and disobedience to the will of God. And therefore, they are not Christians. They are not on the narrow path that's leading to life. Now, I want to say this. That's not judging this morning. If you're here and your first response to what I just said is, man, that sounds judgy. That's not judgy. All I did thus far was just read the text. And I basically repeated it in in five different ways with nothing but synonyms. That's not judging. That's just what Jesus says. If you do not do the will of God, you are not on the path to life, no matter how much or how often you profess Jesus as Lord. I have a personal testimony in 2004 where the Lord God tore down false peace in my life. And I know I'm not the only one here. This testimony could be told all around the room that there was a time in my life where I thought I was a Christian. I claimed to be a Christian, but I was this person right here. I didn't do the will of God. I had false peace. And the way the Lord tore down that deception in my life is through his word. Through the same thing we're doing this morning. I don't want to convince you today by yelling at you and getting really loud. And I probably will get loud at some point this morning. That's not what I want to convince you. I want you to, to see this is in the Bible. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ. A false Christian is known by this characteristic. They do not do the will of God. They are, they, they are workers of lawlessness. This type of person is referenced in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And so this gap is real, and the Bible puts its finger on, on this gap often, that there's a gap between the lips and the life, or at least there can be. There's a gap between what someone professes with their mouth and what they actually live out in their life. And you need to be warned by that this morning, that you can tear down with your life, you can deny with your life what you profess with your mouth. That's the warning this morning. I want you to understand how right and how fitting it is for Jesus to link together these two concepts, lordship and obedience. Lordship and obedience. I want you to think about how right that is, that, that is so right that if you call him Lord, you obey his will. The word Lord in scripture means master. That's what it means. <laughs> That's what the word means. You can just substitute it. You call him master, master. When this word is used as a title for God, it's a claim that God is our master. That we're in this servant-master relationship with the Lord God of all the earth. And when the Bible says that God is Lord of all or that Christ is Lord of all, the claim there is that Jesus is master. God is master in every way. That there is no limits to this master's authority. He's Lord of all. That's what it means to call Jesus Lord. 
And so these Christians, these false Christians that Jesus is dealing with in verse 21, they're not wrong for the word that they use. In fact, everybody in this room should call Jesus Lord because he is Lord. They're not wrong for using the word. We all should bow the knee. We all should call Jesus Lord. And the Bible tells us that there's coming a day where every knee will bow, where every tongue will confess. And you know what Philippians 2 says that every tongue will say? They will say that Jesus is Lord. There's coming a day where there will be no more confusion. Every human being that's ever created will know in that day that he is master. He is Lord of all. And we should bow now. We should trust him now. We, we should confess that Jesus is Lord now. They're not wrong for using the word. He is Lord. They're wrong for how they use the word. They're wrong for using this title in this empty way. They're saying, Master, Master. And with their life, they're denying everything that that word means about Jesus Christ. Think of how backwards it is to call Jesus Lord and then not do what Jesus commands. Master, Master, but I disobey you. Jesus puts this question to his disciples in Luke 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You need to know that that bothers Jesus. That grieves him. That angers Jesus Christ. When you would call him Lord and not do what he commands, Jesus says, why are you doing that? Don't you understand how backwards that is? Don't you understand how hypocritical that is? Why are you saying that word and living how you live? Why are you doing that? The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. He says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You know that that's what it means to truly call upon the name of Jesus, to take his name, to call him Lord. It means that you turn away from sin and you come under his authority. And this is what it means to be saved. This is not just, you know, uh, 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 icing on the cake of the Christian life. This is something that happens as you enter the very door of the kingdom of God in Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Saving faith believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the call to be converted is a call to turn away from iniquity and come under Jesus' authority. Jesus is a king. That's what it means every time when you say Christ uh, the word Christ is not the last name of Jesus, as though he were part of the Christ family. It's a messianic title, and it means king. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is king. And he rules us. He's not like the Queen of England. You know, has the title, kind of sits there. Uh, he actually has authority and rules his subjects. And you know how he does it? His word. King Jesus rules us by His 
word. And so notice the connection in this passage that Jesus makes between lordship and obeying the will of God. The will of God is the word of God. To disobey the word of God is to disobey the will of God. In other words, how do you know how to come under this king's authority? How do you know how to submit your will to this king's will? And the answer to that is the word of God. The scriptures reveal the mind of God, the will of God. God's will is God's word. I think it would help you so much. If you began to view this book, this Bible that we're digging into this morning as a royal scepter of Jesus Christ. This is how the king wields his authority in our life and in his church. This is how we come under his rule and his reign as we come under his word. His word is his will. This is how we follow Jesus as Lord. This is why in verse 23, he refers to those who don't obey his will as workers of lawlessness. You are workers of lawlessness, Jesus says. To be lawless means that you're walking through life like this doesn't exist. Like God didn't breathe out a book, Genesis to Revelation, filled with his will. Filled with his authority. Filled with his standards. You're just strutting through life lawless as though there were no standards to the kingdom of God. The false Christian casts God's will, God's law, God's word, God's commandments behind their back. And they substitute their own way. They don't submit themselves to King Jesus' authority. They do what's right in their own eyes. They don't come under the, the authority of King Jesus revealed in His Word and tremble at His Word. Sounds like this. I love Jesus. I love Jesus Christ. But I don't know about, you know, the Bible. I mean, everybody knows the Bible has errors in it. Everybody knows that there's mistakes in the Bible. I mean, I love Jesus, but this Bible thing, I, I don't know about that. That's what it looks like. Call him Lord and cast off his authority. Guess what Jesus, the resurrected sinless son of God, says about this Bible? He says the scriptures can never be broken. Jesus Christ believed in an unbreakable Bible. Do you? If you call him Lord and you have a different doctrine of Scripture than Jesus had, you are casting off his authority, are you not? It sounds like this. I love Jesus, but I don't know about these miracles in the Bible. I mean, we're, we're an advanced culture and and I mean, surely we've, we've gotten past the, this idea of miracles in the Scriptures. This is what it looks like to substitute King Jesus' authority for your own. Or it sounds like this. I mean, I love Jesus, and Jesus loves everybody. But you know, the Bible is a little outdated on things like homosexuality. I mean, we know so much more now. We know so much more. And surely these things need to be modernized and brought up to date. 
Lord, Lord, but you don't do what he commands you. Casting off his will, casting off his word. You know, the Bible talks a lot about sin, and I love Jesus, but I mean, it talks a lot about sin. And don't you think we need to modernize some of these things? I mean, we know so much more with, on, on the backside of modern psychology, and so many of these things aren't really sin. They're just these, you know, uh, uh, disorders that we have. Don't we need to update this stuff? Instead of bowing to the book, coming under his authority. Again, this is saving faith. What does saving faith look like? It looks like taking Jesus as your king. Your king. No strings attached. Whatever my God commands is right. Whatever he says is good because he's the king. And I'm submitting to him. The false Christian disobeys the will of God the law of God, and the word of God. They deny Christ with their life while they confess his name with their mouth. And so Jesus is teaching us in this passage that the distinguishing mark between a true and a false Christian, listen, is obedience. Now you need to pay per particularly careful attention to what I'm about to say. Because your soul depends on getting this right. You need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Jesus says the distinguishing mark between the true and the false disciple is obedience. And yet I would submit to you that Jesus is not teaching salvation by words. You say, you can't have it both ways, Dustin. You can't say both of those things. You can't say the distinguishing mark is obedience, and yet Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. You need to listen. You need to understand. The only way a sinner can ever be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way in. Enter the gate. That's the only way you can be saved. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. He finished a work on our behalf. And you need to trust him. You need to repent. You need to believe the gospel. That's the only way to be saved. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. Jesus is teaching in this passage that obedience is evidence of real saving faith. Evidence, real evidence, necessary evidence. It shows that your faith is not mere words, that it's, that it's real faith, that it's alive, it's not dead faith. He's putting forward obedience as evidence of saving faith. This is the same thing Jesus did in the previous passage in verse 17. Look, look back with me. Jesus says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit that's the teaching of Christ the kind of fruit you bear does not make you a good or a bad tree it reveals what is already true about you it's evidence the fruit of your life reveals what kind of tree you are and we understand this 
Root comes first, fruit comes second. And so it's the exact opposite. Jesus is not saying, do good works, obey the will of the Father, and then you earn heaven. He's not teaching us about earning heaven. This is about evidence. Are you alive? Is your faith real? Evidence. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident. You know what that word sounds like? Evidence. The Bible says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I want you to understand this so clearly. Practicing righteousness does not make you a child of God. It reveals that you are a child of God. That's an eternal difference. Evidence. Your life is evidence of your faith. This is what Jesus is teaching us. The lack of good fruit in someone's life that claims to be a Christian reveals that they are not a Christian. Salvation produces evidence. One of the one of the clearest images we get of being saved. What does it mean to be saved? We have to get all these wrong ideas out of our mind. Probably the number one is to, to be saved means that you go into a church, you know, you're stirred up by you know, some sermon, and you pray a prayer. That's what it means to be saved. The Bible never uses that image. But you know what? The Bible uses this image, born again. That you, are, you must be born again. You must, you, you, the old you has to pass away. There has to be a whole new creation brought forth. The Bible says that our old heart has to be taken out. God has to give us a new heart, a living heart. To be born again, made new, a real change has to occur. And you got to decide for yourself this morning. Don't settle for the counterfeit. Don't settle for that superficial version of Christianity. You need the real thing. You need to be born again. You need to be made new. You need to have the law of God implanted inside of you and written on your heart. Christ Jesus needs to come live in you. The real thing. Salvation is such a dramatic, drastic change that the Bible calls it a new birth. A new birth. Old's gone. New creation. And so true disciples are known not just by those who initially respond to the gospel, though you must initially respond to the gospel. True disciples are known by continuing on in the words of Jesus. John chapter 8 verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Not if you prayed that prayer one time when you were 13 or 35, but if you abide in my word, if you, if, if you responded to the gospel, you repent and believed, and you kept following me as Lord, you are truly my disciples. This is the doctrine of true conversion. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you don't understand it, 
You are totally unprepared to deal with false conversion. you got to know what the real thing is before you start discerning what's true and what's false. And we need to know this. We need to know what it means to be a Christian, to be a new creation in Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Jesus is teaching us that mere words are not enough. A mere profession of faith is not enough. Now, think of all the areas of the Christian life. If you settle this, this is what it means to be a Christian. Think of all the other areas of the Christian life that, the, that this affects. I'll mention a few. Think of how this affects discipleship. Think of how this affects our desire to teach others the word of God and to do good to souls. If mere words are not enough, then we're, we're, we're involved in something more than this information dump. Uh, let me tell you this about the Bible, and this is what the Bible says, and this doctrine, and this doctrine, and this doctrine. And this is an often overlooked fact of the Great Commission. Jesus Christ did not tell you or command you to teach other people all that Jesus has commanded. He didn't say that. That leaves out one very important word. He said, brothers and sisters, teach them to obey, observe all that I've commanded you. That's a world of difference. Not just giving classes and scholastic intellectual Christianity. This is what it says. This is what it says. This is what it says. You call them to obey their king, Jesus Christ. And all this flows of the doctrine of true conversion. It changes how we think about bringing up children. Parents in the room, what are you after in bringing up your children in the Lord? This truth means that affirming a creed or reciting a catechism is not enough. It means that memorizing Bible verses and knowing facts about Jesus is not enough. You know what you need for your unconverted children, parents? You need to ask God to make them a good tree. Lord Jesus Make them a good tree. Cause them to be born again. Take that old heart out. Put that new heart in. Save their souls. We're not doing less than teaching our children the Bible. You ought to do a lot of that. You ought to fill up their minds with truths about God, truths about sin, truths about Jesus, truths about everything the Bible talks about. But if we got this right, what true conversion means, it also means that you should address their will. Not just their mind, also their will. You should call your children to obey Jesus as their king. You should call them to repent and follow Jesus as Lord. Changes the way we think about church membership. Does it not? This is the foundation of church membership. You say, what do you mean? Well, who comes in the church? Who, who comes in the church of Jesus Christ? If Jesus is saying that mere words are not enough, this means that not just anybody can come in the church that says Jesus is Lord. Because he's telling us in this passage that they can tear it down with their life. They can be a walking contradiction. And so those who belong in the church of Jesus are not just those who have any old profession of faith in Christ but only those who have a credible profession of faith in Christ. They confess Jesus as their Lord and their life is lining up with their 
profession. We need to recover this in our culture. That church membership is supposed to mean something. It's supposed to mark off a group of people. Those are the representatives of Jesus. Best we can tell, those are the repentant followers of Jesus Christ. Joining a church is not supposed to be easier than joining Costco. Of coming in and getting your form and saying, hey, I'd like to join. Where do I send the money? Your life needs to be evaluated. Are you this walking contradiction? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ, this fundamentally changes how we think about church membership. Another point to mention here is also is the grounds for how we think about church discipline. We're to guard the purity of the church. Why? Because Jesus' name is attached to this group of people. And if we lose the purity of the church, then we tell a lie to the world that being a Christian doesn't mean anything. You can name him as Lord and live like the world, and and that's what it means to be a Christian. And so the Lord has given us church discipline to guard the purity of the church, the honor of Jesus Christ, and listen, to love people. You know what one of the most loving things that you can do with someone who has false peace is not let them get to the judgment seat of Christ before they figure it out. One of the most loving things that you can do is to draw the line, draw the standard, and call them to obedience to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about an unrepentant one being cast out, listen, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of of Jesus, in the day of judgment. Biblical doctrine of conversion, it reforms all kinds of areas of the Christian life. We're We're just scratching the surface here. If this is what it means to be a Christian, think of it leaves nothing else unturned. Jesus is teaching us that heaven is not a place for those who make it their practice to disobey the will of God. Even if they name Jesus as Lord. Again, I want to convince you of this from the scriptures, from the scriptures. Only those with a real holiness will stand in the presence of God. Do you believe that? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Only those who do the will of God, brothers and sisters, will receive the promise. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And the implication of the opposite is also true. If you do not do the will of God, you will not receive what is promised. Only those who do the will of God abide will live forever. 1 John chapter 2 verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You need to understand that not everybody is in the family of Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The obedient ones are in his family. Those who do the will of God inherit the promise. And so those who claim to know Jesus and live in disobedience are false Christians on the way to hell. Again, this is just a plain sense of this passage. They have false peace. 
And they need to turn away. You need to wake up. You need to realize the state of your soul. In verse 22, Jesus turns the corner. We're not talking about this general principle, this general truth. Verse 22, Jesus begins to prophesy about the final day. The prophet of all prophets. The one who speaks the very words of God because he is the word of God. He pulls back the veil of the final day. And you can rest assured that this is a reality. He is prophesying a reality that many will experience on the final day. He says on that day, this is a reference to judgment day. The prophets in the Old Testament called it the day of the Lord. Jesus prophesies a terrible reality that many, the Bible says that many, will stand before him on the final day with false peace. They will speak to Jesus. They will try to explain themselves. And then the text says Jesus will speak to them the most terrifying words that will ever be uttered in this creation. And the whole reason why Jesus is teaching this sermon in Matthew 7 is so that you don't have to wait till you get to the judgment to find this out about yourself. He's lovingly warning you. This is a reality. Prepare for it now. And so these jarring words from Jesus are his, are his pleading with us. Enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. The words that they speak to Jesus on the final day reveal the root of their problem. They have false peace because they rely on false evidence. You need to understand how this works. How can someone carry false confidence all the way through their lives? They rely on the wrong thing. They're relying on false evidence. They have a wrong doctrine of assurance. And we have at least three things in this passage. And the first is this. They appeal to their orthodoxy. They don't say on the final day, good teacher. They say, Lord. This is a title for God. They're saying the right things about Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is master. He, he is God in every way. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth. They call him Lord. And he is Lord. They confess Christ publicly as God. But it's not enough. They had zeal. Not only did they call Jesus Lord, they said Lord, Lord. Repetition in the Bible, it serves to emphasize something. Lord, Lord, I mean you are really our Lord. Also has this idea here that they are presuming that there's a relationship. Between them and Jesus. Lord, it's me. Come on. It's me, Lord. They're trying to appeal to the wrong evidence. Their supposed experiences. You need to understand that you can be deceived. And that orthodox, you know, confessing orthodox things about Jesus is not salvation. And then finally, you see them appeal to their ministry labor. 
mean, this is amazing stuff. They said, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I want you to just try to picture that. Did we not serve you, Jesus, with all of our hearts? And did you not confirm our ministry with the power of your Holy Spirit? I want you to see that part of their pitiful defense before Jesus Christ on the last day is to appeal to their works, their ministry labor. Look how much I've served you. But it's obviously not enough. It's not a sufficient grounds. By the way, I want to mention this. Some people size up local churches. I don't know if you ever heard this before. Uh, they size up local churches based off of how charismatic they are. Man, that church has the spirit right there. Because all that weird stuff happens when they worship Jesus. They have the spirit. I mean, this church over here, they have the word. But I mean, this church over here, man, they have the spirit. And I want you to notice in this passage that char charismatic works in this text are not assured grounds for maturity. And the reason you know that is they're not even assured grounds that you're a Christian. You have Holy Spirit fireworks going off all around you. And this text says you cannot know Jesus. It's not a sure God. It's a perfect way to be deceived and to be led by your sensual you know, sight. Hear what you feel and see. But it's not a sure God to the state of your soul. You hear people sometimes appeal to their ministry labor. You ask them about their soul. You ask them about their life. And it's about three and a half seconds of I prayed to receive Christ when I was, you know, uh, whenever. And then I surrendered to missions. And I was a missionary and a youth pastor. And I served this church, this church, this church, this church, and this church. You know what that stuff, Jesus is telling us that that stuff tells you about someone's soul? Nothing. Nothing. Obedience to Jesus Christ is the mark. All of these are insufficient grounds for confidence on the final day that your faith is real. That you have real faith in Jesus Christ. These false Christians stand before Jesus and they suddenly realize they did everything except the will of God. And that's a terrible reality. That you wasted your life. You pretended the whole time. Look at all the activity. Look at all the service. But you didn't do His will. You left His will undone. They could do miracles, but they couldn't do simple obedience to His commands. They could preach Jesus, but they couldn't practice what they preached. They knew the name of Jesus, but they didn't know Him. And I hope I don't have to connect this for you. Do you understand how great of a warning this is for us in the church? This is not a warning to be felt by those who have never heard Jesus' name. They should repent and believe the gospel too. But this is a warning for us. That you can be so close to the things of Jesus and not know Him. 
You can be so close to the things of Christ only to be cast into outer darkness on the final day. Perfect example is one of the ones hearing this sermon was named Judas. He did such a masterful job of deceiving his brothers that at the Last Supper when Jesus says, the one who dips the bread in the cup, that's the one who's going to betray me. They all start looking around at each other saying, Lord, is it me? They didn't know it was him. They lived with him every day for three years. They didn't know it was him. He was a full-throated, full-out hypocrite. And, they, and he deceived them. So close, not only to the things of Jesus, but God incarnate. Walking around following God incarnate in his earthly ministry. And yet cast into outer darkness. All because he was a pretender. All because he settled for surface level Christianity instead of heart religion. That's the, that's the one note that you can find all through the Sermon on the Mount is heart religion. Not surface level hypocritical stuff, but the real thing. The righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. You don't understand how dangerous it is to be bored with the things of God. To be bored with the word of God. These are the markers. These are the markers of how you can slip through 10, 20, 30 years in the church. Is that if you're really honest, you're bored with this stuff. You do it in an external way, but you don't love God. You don't love his word. And listen, you need, to, you need to deal with it now. Don't wait to the final day. This is the whole reason for this warning in this passage that those who trifle with Jesus and play around with sin, that you would deal with the true state of your soul. Beware of false peace. We must examine ourselves. God's word commands this. And one of the things that you can definitely say about those with false peace who arrive at the judgment is they did not. They did not examine themselves. If they would have examined themselves with the standard that the Scripture teaches us to use to examine themselves, they would have known where they stood with the Lord. But we see in this text they're surprised on the last day. They didn't examine their life. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. We have this commandment from the Apostle Paul. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I want you to understand that those with false peace they look in the wrong place and they find false assurance. We have to examine ourselves scripturally. If you use your own standard, you're going to make stuff up. What does that mean? Oh, I know I'm a Christian. I've never killed anybody. The Bible never holds that as a standard for what a Christian is. It makes you feel good about yourself, but the Bible never holds that as a standard of what you don't do. Do you love God? Or as this text says, does Jesus Christ live in you? 
Does Jesus live in you? You have to look deeper than surface level of what you say and your Christian activity, all the busyness. You got to look deeper than that. Does Jesus Christ live in you? Do you think it'll show itself? If Jesus Christ, the uncreated Son of God, incarnate, lives inside of you, you think it would be evident? You think there would be some fruit, some evidence that Jesus Christ lives in me? And everything the Bible says about conversion is absolutely. By this it is evident. Do you walk in the way of righteousness? Doing the will of God? Do you love the word of God? Do you love to obey the word of God? Not just, you know, kicked back like a coffee shop theologian with getting your mind all full. But do you love to obey Jesus? To get into the scriptures to see something about your God and what he commands. And you respond to him with faith and obedience. Do you love to obey him? Or do you just call him Lord? When you sin, does it grieve you? These are really good markers as you examine yourself. Not, does it make you feel bad because you're ashamed of what you've done? Or does it make you feel bad because you got caught for your sin? Does your sin grieve you? Christian, when you sin, does it grieve you because it grieves God, your Father, the one that you love with all of your heart? You're not looking for perfection? That's not the goal of self-examination. Am I perfect? Of course you're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect until we see Jesus face to face. But that's not the question, is it? And neither is the question is, I just don't know if I've done enough. You know, I look within, I examine myself, and I just don't know if I've done enough to earn assurance. That's not the question either. The question is this, are you a good tree? Are you alive in Jesus Christ? Does Jesus Christ live in you? Or do you fail the test? Do you fail the test? There's a book in the New Testament, book of 1 John, and one of the things that 1 John does is it gives Christians a series of tests. You could call them tests of life. Obedience tests, doctrine tests, love tests. And John puts these forward as real markers in our life of, of these things are going to be there if you're a Christian. If you're alive in Jesus Christ, you're going to practice righteousness. You're going to love your brother. You're going to confess the truth about the lordship of Jesus. Please understand, if you examine yourself and you fail the test, we are not talking about carnal Christians who lose their rewards in heaven. There's no such thing as that. Okay? We are talking about fake Christians who lose their souls forever. And you need to feel the warning of that. Jesus is talking about eternity. He promises that he will respond to those who have false peace. He will speak the, the two most terrifying phrases that will ever 
be uttered. And the first is this, I never knew you. Verse 23, I never knew you. Now, remember what we're talking about. We're not talking about the person who's never heard the name of Jesus. We're talking about the person that has thought they have known Jesus their whole life. And Jesus says, when they stand before me on the final day, I will speak to them. After they make all their excuses to me, I will speak to them. I never knew you. This is sober. This is sober. It's not like this person was saved and then they lost their salvation. Jesus says they were fake the whole time. I never knew you, Jesus said. Not I knew you for a little while and then you turned away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. And then the Lord Jesus says, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. This is the language of total rejection. Those with false peace are totally and forever rejected by Jesus Christ. Depart from me. Away with you. Or get out of my face. I cannot stand you in my presence. Depart from me. The one who hates wickedness, the Lord Jesus Christ, with perfect hatred, will not endure the presence of those who call Him Lord and refuse to submit. Now I want you to think about what this reveals about Jesus Christ. I want you to picture yourself there as the Sermon on the Mount is closing in Matthew chapter 7. And you're hearing this Jewish rabbi address his disciples and the surrounding crowds. And you're hearing him teach and you like what he's saying. That he's laying out the path of righteousness and he's calling out all the hypocrites, all the Pharisees. And you're hearing a man standing before you, a real man, with his feet in the dirt of Galilee, standing on a mountain in Galilee, red blood pumping through his human body. He's a man, warm breath, leaving the lungs of Jesus. His voice would have had a real human sound. He's a man. And you're standing there and you're listening to him teach. And, he, and, and, and his father was this lowly, uh, his, his earthly father was this lowly carpenter. He comes from this lowly nowhere town, Nazareth. His disciples that are scattered all around are this ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors. And then all of a sudden he erupts at the end of the sermon. He says, oh yeah, by the way, on the last day you'll stand before me. A man said that. They will say to me, and Jesus says, I will say to them. He's teaching himself to be God in the flesh. He is proclaiming himself to be the judge on the last day that every human being, this is awesome stuff. Every human being will be raised on the last day and gathered up and they will stand before who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
The judge on the final day will wear our nature. He's the man, Christ Jesus. And you say, man, what kind of man is this? That says everybody's going to give an account and stand before me. And that's something you have to deal with. C.S. Lewis says that everybody has to deal with what he called the trilemma. That when Jesus speaks like this, the option is off the table that Jesus is just a really good teacher and a really good man. Can't do that. You can't say, man, I, I love the teachings of Jesus. I mean, I don't think he's God. I don't think he's resurrected. I don't think he's Lord. But man, I love the teachings of Jesus. The problem is, this is the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught himself to be the last day judge. That everybody must give an account to the God-man resurrected and exalted from Galilee. This is the highest thing that could possibly be said about Jesus Christ is that judgment will be given to him. God will deliver judgments into the hand of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body. We must give an account to Jesus. His word on that day will be final. He is the one who is deciding who enters and who is banished from the kingdom of God. Acts 17 verse 31 tells us that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is awesome stuff. That means, Christian brother and sister, when you go to stand before the judge, you stand before Jesus. You stand before Jesus. Is that not a comforting thought? The one who died for my sins is who I will stand before on the final day. The one who loved me and washed me from my sins in his own blood. No one's ever loved me like this judge. The reality is that in a hundred years from now, almost, this is true, for everyone in this room, your fate will be sealed in a hundred years from now. What I mean by sealed is this. Death seals our relationship with God. If we die saved or lost, we remain in that condition forever. There is no opportunity to get right with God after you die. And so that means from right now until the moment that you die is the only time that you have left to respond to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And his warning is simple. There are many in that day that will enter into hell who call him Lord. One of the saddest things about my perspective in this moment, the perspective of a preacher in this moment, is that when you give a warning like this, some of the people that you wish would take it the most serious, take it to heart the most, are the ones so bored, thinking about everything else except what needs to be thought about. It grieves. It's so grieving. Every single one of us are to examine ourselves by the word of God. 
Another thing that's a burden is some of the sheep of Jesus with the most tender consciences are so bothered by this warning. And you have the ones that shouldn't be bothered, you know, bothered and the ones that should be bothered. They don't care. All they're thinking about is lunch. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to drive His Word into our hearts, to make it effective. That's why we ask the Lord to rule us this morning by His Word, to cancel all that. To comfort who needs to be comforted with the things of Jesus and to tear down those with false peace so that they can be built up, so that they can be saved. The passage calls us to sober, serious, sincere self-examination. Does Jesus know you? I don't know if you thought about this question before. It's different than do you know Jesus? Jesus says in this passage, I never knew you. Does Jesus know you? And that's a different thing. If you were to take a trip to the White House tomorrow and you go bang on the gates of the White House all you want and you say, I know the president, I know the president. The one thing we know for sure is you're not getting in unless the president knows you, right? You can say you know the president all all you want. You can say you know Jesus all you want, but does Jesus know you? Does Jesus Christ know you? Are you in relationship with the Son of God? Do you want God? That's the last question I'll leave you with this morning. We're talking about hell. We're talking about judgment. We're talking about heaven. But I want you to understand this. Heaven is not a place for people who just want to get out of hell. If that was the offer, Satan would take it. Out of hell, go to heaven. Heaven is a place for those who love God. And that's my question for you this morning. Do you want God? Do you want the real thing? Do you you love the Lord? The call to respond comes from Jesus himself. Earlier in Matthew 7, he says, Enter the narrow gate. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and continue on in his word. Enter the narrow gate and go down the narrow path. And if you feel condemned this morning, if you feel like you've examined your life and you know that you are not a Christian, then turn with faith to Jesus Christ. The moment that God shows you that about yourself, you're done with introspection. You know what you needed to know. And from that point forward, all you need to know is to look to Christ, to come to Christ, to believe the gospel of Jesus. And it is a beautiful thought to consider this morning that the one who speaks on the final day is also speaking today. On that day... Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On this day, Jesus says, come to me and I will remember your lawless deeds no more. So gracious king, I'll close with this poem written about this passage. Thus thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. 
You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would make your word effective this morning in our life. And we just lift up our hearts to you, Lord. You are the king. Lord, we submit to your teaching as a local church. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would rule us in every way. In your name we pray. Amen.